from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome once again to Washington Watch. Coming up on this hump day edition, President Biden met yesterday at the White House with the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Democrat Dick Durbin of Illinois, and the ranking Republican member Chuck Grassley of Iowa to discuss the pending nomination to the Supreme Court to replace retiring Justice Stephen Breyer. President Biden's comments at the opening of the meeting underscores the ideological divide between the two parties. There's always a renewed national debate every time we uh, nominate any president nominates a justice because the Constitution is always evolving slightly uh, in terms of additional rights or curtailing rights, etc. And it's uh, always an issue. We'll talk about that evolving Constitution with the ranking member of the committee, Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley. We'll talk about the meeting and whether or not Republicans will be as unified in their opposition to President Biden's nominee as Democrats were to former President Trump's. And here is a story to take note of. Recall the Navy SEALs who won a temporary stay in court on the vaccine mandate based upon the Navy's refusal to even consider their request for religious exemptions. Well, the SEALs are back in court. Why? Well, the Biden Pentagon is punishing them for simply exercising their constitutional rights to the point of denying at least one SEAL critical medical care. We'll talk with Justin Butterfield, Deputy General Counsel at First Liberty Institute, later on Washington Watch. And speaking of religious freedom, while we saw a reprieve during the Trump administration, the hostility toward faith in the public square is growing in many liberal cities, especially when it crosses into the left's sacred territory of abortion. We'll talk with the attorney who successfully represented Louisville, Kentucky, police officer who was suspended for praying while he was off duty. Matt Heffron with Thomas More Society is here with the details. And researchers with Johns Hopkins are out with a study of the effects of lockdowns that were used to fight the spread of the coronavirus. Remember statements like this from Dr. Fauci? The fact that we shut down when we did and the rest of the world did has saved hundreds of millions of infections and millions of lives. Well, the facts seem to tell a different story. In fact, something very different. So we'll talk about that later here on Washington Watch. The experts uh, were wrong on the lockdowns. What else might they be wrong on? Yesterday, Pfizer, the maker of one of the vaccines, submitted their clinical trial data to the FDA to get approval for vaccines for babies. Now, the vaccine would be approved under emergency use authorization. Is this a good idea? Are we rushing it? We'll talk with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, professor of medicine at Stanford University. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you miss anything, it's all there later, archived at TonyPerkins.com. Today's Bible verse from our two-year journey through the Bible, stands on the word, comes from Job chapter 37, verse 14. Listen to this, O Job, stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. God and his ways are certainly beyond our understanding, but we can depend upon his word as we follow him and trust him no matter what we face in this life. To be a part of our Bible reading plan, go to frc.org Bible. President Biden yesterday reiterated his intention to announce by the end of this month his nominee to succeed Supreme Court Associate Justice Stephen Breyer. I intend to take this decision, make this decision, and get it to my colleagues uh, by uh, by the end of the month. That's my hope, uh, and uh, and I'm looking forward to their advice and how to proceed and how the hearings will be conducted. President Biden made those comments at the opening of a meeting with Senators Dick Durbin of Iowa, uh, of uh, Illinois, and Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa, the ranking member on the Senate Judiciary Committee, who joins us now with details of that meeting. Senator, welcome back to the program. Glad to be with you. Thank you for having me. So was the president interested in your thoughts about the process and who the nominee might be? Didn't talk much about the nominee. He talked mostly about uh, the fact that he had made this promise to put a black um, uh, African-American on the the, uh, court. Uh, He talked about uh, several people that are on that list, and I think you've seen that list on television. I believe that he uh, has not started any process of interviewing people. 
He didn't say when he was going to start that process, but he did indicate that by the end of the month, he hoped to have a name to us. So we don't talk much about nominees, uh, at least I don't, until the name's announced. So I'm looking at the individual that I think, uh, not a individual, but I look at people, are they going to be faithful to the Constitution, particularly the original intent of the writers? Are they going to interpret laws of Congress the way they're written, leave their own personal views out, not expand laws that are passed by Congress just because maybe Congress left something out? We have our job. That's make law. They have their job to interpret law. And I want somebody that's going to be faithful to the law and faithful to the Constitution. And that's what I'm looking at. I'm not looking at men, women, uh, white, black, uh, Native American, Hispanic. Those things are uh, immaterial to me. I have voted for women. I voted against women. I voted for some men, against some men. And I voted for African-Americans, obviously, because I voted for Clarence Thomas. And uh, that's kind of the way I look at it. And I hope that's the way that my colleagues look at it. Well, I would agree with you in terms of looking at the judicial philosophy. And you want someone who is um, will honor the Constitution. But working with that definition, the president is going to make it a moving target based upon his statements. I want to I played this earlier, but I want to read this quote. He said, because the Constitution is always evolving slightly in terms of additional rights or curtailing rights. I mean, he's looking for someone who will find these uh, uh, unenumerated rights uh, in the Constitution. Is that a problem for uh, constitutionalists? Yes, it's a problem for most Republicans. It might be a problem for some Democrats as well, but more so Republicans. Uh, And we have found uh, that people... uh, uh, look at it as a living constitution. I don't. I look at it as the original intent. Uh, obviously, uh, 240 years ago, uh, they didn't know today what today is. But this foundation that we call our constitution, even to some extent being extended maybe beyond what original writers did by certain precedents that are sticking out now, probably maintain. Maybe the one on Roe v. Wade won't be after this year, but for the most part, they do. You know, Brown overturned uh, the Plessy case, uh, things like that from over after 50 years. But we still have this basic document that is so unique from the standpoint of the principle of limited government, from the standpoint that government doesn't give us our rights or take those rights away, which they could do. We get our rights from God. Uh, We, in turn, maybe in the writing of the Constitution and maybe through some court decisions that are right or wrong, uh, those rights have been given to government to operate or to exercise in our stead because uh, certain things like uh, armed services, uh, defense of the country, things like that. But the Constitution is meant to protect the American people from the government. It's not to tell the government what they can do to the American people or not. And uh, I want to maintain that, and I hope that we get a a nominee from this president that thinks the same way. But I have to confess to you that it could be somebody that would uh, look at the Constitution even worse than Breyer did. Well, let's talk about that, Senator Grassley, because if you look back on the nominees of President Trump, uh, they were approved, I think, almost uh, strictly down party line. And uh, in fact, you had the Democrats in total opposition uh, in most cases to uh, President Trump's nominees. You have now uh, one Democratic senator, Democratic Senator uh, Lujan of uh, New Mexico, uh, unfortunately had a stroke, and he's going to be out for four to six weeks. So the Senate is going to be very narrowly, I mean, it's 50-50, even with the vice president weighing in. 
Do you see the Republicans being unified in opposition if, and, and I'm saying if because we don't know who it is, but if it follows along the lines that you said, someone who is outside the judicial mainstream, someone who sees that document as a living, breathing document in which they can find and discover new rights, do you think the Republicans will be op- opposed? I think so, but I think most of them are smart enough to wait till the committee gets done with this hearing, make each individual ought to get a chance, if they want to, to talk face-to-face with a candidate, even if they aren't on the committee. I stressed that to the president of the United States yesterday. Uh, I think that Biden agrees with me on it. I, I, that doesn't mean that somebody's going to be able to sit down and have a three- or four-hour meeting with the candidate, but something that's worthwhile so they can feel for it. But... Uh, uh, so I hope they wait until we get done before they uh, make that decision. I usually wouldn't say I'm for or against somebody until the hearing is over. So I think that uh, that what you're going to find from Republicans is that we're going to be very tough on this nominee, ask the tough questions, and uh, and tr- try to get answers. But we're not going to get down in the gutter like the Democrats did with uh, with, with uh, one, one of the nominees. You know, and I agree with that approach, Senator. I think you should not pass judgment until you have a conversation with the individuals, and I do think that it's uh, wise to let the, uh, let the committee process uh, run its course. And uh, I would not hope, I would hope that the Republicans would not engage in the character assassinations that we, attempts that we saw uh, under President Trump and the nominees that he put forward. But at the end of the day, I do hope that the Republicans, as you have articulated, will hold fast to an understanding of what our Constitution demands, and that is uh, an allegiance to the fact that it is not a moving target, but it is a document that has survived nearly two and a half centuries. And uh, you and uh, your colleagues have done, I think, a, a really good job on the Republican side to protect it. But the battle is ongoing. Uh, It is, and we can thank President Trump. Whether you like President Trump or not, uh, he made outstanding uh, nominees to the Supreme Court. We've got a six to three majority now. Whoever replaces Breyer is not going to change that makeup, that balance. Uh, It's going to uh, uh, make, make sure that we have a solid majority for interpreting the Constitution and our laws according to the way Congress wrote them. Well, Senator, always great to talk with you. I know we'll be talking with you more in the weeks ahead, but uh, hold the line. Hold the line and protect the Constitution. Remember what I said. Republicans are going to be tough, but we're not going to get down in the gutter like the Democrats did uh, with uh, the, the nominees before. All right. Senator Chuck Grassley, always great to talk with you. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Goodbye. All right. Senator Grassley of Iowa, ranking member on the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee. Coming up, the U.S. Navy is reportedly violating a court order, barring it from uh, punishing Navy SEALs who were seeking religious accommodations to the DOD's vaccine mandates. I'll get the latest from one of their attorneys after the break. Don't go away. More Washington Watch still ahead. Are you struggling to spend consistent time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading with an intentional focus of diving deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues. By studying the Bible, we can see the grandeur of God unfold throughout the past. The Stand on the Word reading plan takes you through daily scripture in an engaging manner to help you stay grounded in God's truth. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you every Sunday with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. 
To begin this journey, visit frc.org Bible. With the current division and confusion of our culture, it is so important for Christians to root ourselves in the truth of God's word so that we are prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. For this purpose, Family Research Council launched the Center for Biblical Worldview. The center applies the Bible and the historical teachings of the church to current issues. This helps Christians understand and live by a biblical worldview, know why scripture must be authoritative, and equips believers to advance and defend the faith in workplaces, schools, communities, and the public square. The experts at the center address and provide resources on issues like religious liberty, abortion, voting, marriage, and sexuality. To access free resources like the Biblical Worldview series, go to frc.org worldview. To get highlights of the latest work of the Worldview Fellows, including blogs, interviews, and publications, sign up at frc.org subscriptions. At Family Research Council, it is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, we've decided to be proactive to make sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. That is why we created a tech subscription platform. If we get canceled, you can stay informed and still find updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts, and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and you will get special alerts on the biggest stories of the day. You can stay informed with just a simple text. We want you to be able to stay connected with like-minded community and to always have access to our content. Stay connected and informed. Just text STAND to 67742. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins. Early last month, a federal district court ordered the Department of Defense to not take any adverse action against a group of 35 U.S. Navy SEALs and Navy Special Warfare personnel while their challenge to the department's vaccine mandate was moving through the courts. Well, despite the order, multiple SEALs continue to be mistreated due to their religious objections to the vaccine mandate. So now the legal group representing the SEALs is turning back to the court to stop the Navy from violating the order and continuing to punish and harass their clients. With me now to talk about the latest on this is Justin Butterfield. He's the deputy general counsel at First Liberty Institute, which is representing the Navy SEALs. Justin, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you for having me. Okay, start by telling us what your clients have had to face even after the court order was issued. Yeah, so the court ordered the, the Department of Defense and the Navy to not take any action against our clients because of their requesting religious accommodation for the vaccine. And the court issued that order. And unfortunately, the Department of the Navy and the Department of Defense have ignored that. And they have continued to subject our clients to restrictions on the basis of they're just requesting a religious accommodation for their, their vaccine objection. Uh, we've had one client who needed medical treatment, and he was told he could not travel to get that medical treatment because of his request for religious accommodation. Uh, we had another client who has been told that he cannot leave his base even to get groceries or gasoline without permission because he requested a religious accommodation to the vaccine. So these are these are egregious things. Um, the, the client who needed the medical treatment offered to, to handle all the travel and pay for that himself, and he was still still denied that uh, permission to do that just because he requested uh, the right to follow his religious beliefs, his religious convictions, and it's wrong. The Navy should not be uh, ignoring what the Constitution requires of their protection for their own soldiers' religious beliefs. And that's so, what they're doing right here. Yeah, there's one particular one that uh, was injured. It's a traumatic brain injury, and he was trying to get treatment uh, for that. What is the rationale that the Navy is using to restrict the movement and travel of these members? You know, they're, they're saying that, well, because they're not vaccinated, they're going to be a threat. E- even though it's right now they are working with plenty of people who are not vaccinated, civilians who are working right alongside them are not required to be vaccinated presently. 
there are all sorts of people in their, on their bases who are not required to be vaccinated. But really, the government is just taking these, these aggressive actions against our clients um, with, with, without a real good reason. And it's wrong. Unfortunately, we have to go back to court to get what's called an order to show cause to get the Department of the Navy to tell why they are refusing to follow the court's order. And so we'll see what the Navy says when they when they respond to, to the court's order that they tell the court, why are you not abiding by the order that we've issued? Uh, and so we'll see what the Navy says, but but it's unfortunate that they're continuing to put Navy SEALs who've given so much to this country through the ringer just because those SEALs want to follow their religious beliefs. Well, Justin, I would imagine that these Navy SEALs, they have a court order telling the Navy to, you know, a cease and desist. We're going to let them have their day in court. They're still doing this. What does this say for the other members of the military who are not under the protection of a court order that are trying to get a religious exemption to this mandate? You know, I think it says what we've seen all along, that the Department of Defense uh, doesn't care about the religious convictions of their soldiers. And it's unfortunate that they are more concerned with 100% vaccine compliance than they are with 100% constitution compliance. But that's that's the way they've been acting, and that's why we had to, in the first place, file this lawsuit and get the preliminary injunction against the Department of the Navy. And, you know, in that hearing, um, one of the pieces of evidence that came out was that if you look at the Department of the Navy's uh, operating procedure for reviewing religious accommodation requests, it was a 50-point procedure, but the first step was to deny the request, and then 49 steps after that were justifying the denial of it. So the Navy has not been doing what the law requires. They've not been considering the religious beliefs and the, the context for each individual plaintiff. And they've just been rejecting wholesale all of the, all of the members of the Navy's religious uh, accommodation requests w- with manufactured reasons. Uh, so, Justin, uh, you have amended your lawsuit to make it a class action lawsuit to fully restore the rights of all U.S. Navy members. Where does that stand? That's right. We're, we're seeking class certification. Uh, we're in the process of that. Hopefully, hopefully that will be complete. And this will, uh, they will extend the scope of our lawsuit to cover all members of the Navy who are, are suffering this sort of religious discrimination and are having their religious rights guaranteed by the Constitution and by federal law and military law um, that are just being trampled upon. So we're, we're working to do that to extend this to cover everybody in the Navy. When might that take place? Uh, well, it's going to depend on, on the court, so we're just going to have to wait and see, um, hopefully hopefully in the near future. In the meantime, what are you asking the court exactly to do in this case with the Navy SEALs? So we are asking for the Navy SEALs, first for the Navy to follow what the law says and actually look at each religious accommodation request and and make an actual determination on the basis of each individual soldier's request. And ultimately, we're asking for the Navy SEALs to be able to follow their religious convictions, to be able to, to not have to receive the, the COVID vaccine when the Navy has no compelling interest, no compelling reason in forcing them to. Uh, how can our viewers, our listeners, find out more about uh, this defense of the Navy SEALs? Sure. So you can go to our website at firstliberty.org. Um, you can check us out there. You can follow along with this case, and you can see the other cases that we at First Liberty are working on throughout the nation. All right, Justin, always great to talk with you. Appreciate all the work that you and uh, First Liberty Institute do on behalf of religious freedom. Well, thank you for having me on. Absolutely. This is coming when we're beginning to see the ineffectiveness of the vaccine. I mean, we're over most of the the world is over this now, over the mandates. But yet it appears the Biden administration and many of the governments here in the U.S., local governments like here in Washington, D.C., are doubling down. Makes no sense. Absolutely makes no sense. Unless it does make sense if there's another agenda here. And it's about power. It's about crushing dissent. I'm going to encourage you to pray for these attorneys that are out there representing individuals who are fighting this. Now, I, again, I'm not anti-vaccine, but I am anti-mandate 100%. And I don't think we should be forced to inject anything into our body unless we want to do it. And we've, the science says it's good. The science is questionable on all of this right now and its effectiveness. All right. We're going to talk more about religious freedom on the other side of the break. A Louisville, Kentucky police officer 
suspended for praying off-duty. The details next. What is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs. Why should we care about this freedom? At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe that it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a tragic reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media, even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to increase globally. In Scripture, God calls Christians to pray and care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To access Family Research Council's latest resources and to learn more about religious freedom and what you can do to help the persecuted, go to frc.org slash religious liberty. Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets, and other social media posts, and our latest blogs, updates, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. You are listening to Washington Watch, and I'm Tony Perkins, your host, the website, TonyPerkins.com. All right, I'm going to do a, a blast to the past, uh, take you back to May 4th of uh, 2016, I believe it was. This is when President Trump, I uh, worked with the Trump with President and his White House, to get an executive order promoting religious freedom, protecting religious freedom in America, something that we've seen increasingly under attack. Here's what the president said uh, in the Rose Garden at the White House. Today, my administration is leading by example as we take historic steps to protect religious liberty in the United States of America. We will not allow people of faith to be targeted, bullied, or silenced anymore. That was uh, May 4th, 2017, uh, shortly after the president had taken office that year. And we worked very closely with the administration to get that. And we saw it begin to move throughout the administration and it had effects across the country. But there is um, there is a grave threat to religious freedom in America. Again, we're seeing it, especially for those who serve in public office or serve in public service. It was nearly a year ago when uh, Officer Matt Schringer, a 13-year-old, a 13-year police veteran uh, with the Louisville Metro Police Department in Kentucky, was uh, suspended and stripped of his police powers. For what? For privately and quietly praying outside an abortion clinic at 6 in the morning while off duty and out of uniform. That suspension, by the way, dragged out for four months while city officials in Louisville apparently no, they wronged the officer, and last week they offered to settle the lawsuit he filed over their actions against him. Uh, here with me now to provide the details in this case is attorney Matt Heffron. He is a senior counsel at the Thomas More Society, which filed the lawsuit on behalf of the officer. Uh, Matt, welcome to Washington Watch. Hi, Tony. Thanks for having me. Well, let's uh, tell us what did I miss there in in the intro? This this officer, thirteen year veteran, praying on his own time, out of uniform, outside an abortion clinic. How could the city go after him for that? Tony, you uh, you actually stated it uh, very well. I was thinking as you were saying that it's probably better stated than most of the uh, news, uh, the unfavorable news outlets have stated it. 
this gentleman was Saturday morning in downtown Louisville. Um, <clears throat> there were no cars going by, and he was praying with one person, his father. And then he, he had his uniform covered up so that if you saw the security video, you couldn't tell if either of them were police, certainly which one was a policeman. He got in his car, he goes down to work, and after a couple hours, he's called back into headquarters, and he's told he's suspended. That's it. Quiet prayer. And during that time, same time period, uh, the same Louisville Police Department uh, had officers who were marching for uh, a gay pride uh, and also marching and protesting with Black Lives Matter. Those officers, we know, did not get any sort of discipline whatsoever. But were, our gentlemen. Were they in uniform? They were in uniform, on duty, and they were actually applauded by the police department. So, uh, so you can't you can't get much more, uh, much greater contrast than that. Well, I'm, I'm I'm very familiar with a scenario like this. My law enforcement career ended in a very similar uh-huh. situation out in front of an abortion clinic, um, because abortion is kind of sacred uh, to, uh, to to those on the left and to many of those that control. Government. How did the government, the city of Louisville, how did they respond uh, to your lawsuit when you filed the suit on behalf of the officer? They did not respond. In fact, uh, they didn't even file the answer, which is the first thing. The complaint is filed and 30 days later or 60 days later. In some circumstances, the other side has to answer before they even answered. uh, Their attorney contacted our local counsel, Blaine Blood in, uh, in Louisville and said they'd like to talk settlement. And so you know that the Louisville city government knew that they were in the wrong position here, and uh, they wanted to get rid of this as quickly as they could. And uh, in, in a quick mediation, they offered $75,000, and uh, considering all the circumstances, we decided that was a good settlement, get uh, Officer Matt Schrenger back on the force, and uh, so, so we settled the case for that. So, Officer Schringer, his uh, file is clear, uh, no repercussions here. I mean, are you watching this very carefully to make sure they don't take any right. adverse actions against him? Right, and they need to be careful because any retaliatory conduct uh, would be seen as simply uh, simply that, and we'd be more than happy to file another lawsuit. Uh, we were going to win this lawsuit. I know that sounds a little bit uh, overly confident, but this is one that a trial lawyer would like to take. Uh, and, and one thing I don't think we quite got into was that he was left dangling for four months. And we immediately after they, they suspended him, I, he called us, Tom Smore Society, and we looked into the case, looked into the alleged allegations, uh, and they didn't have a, a case to, to stand on. They didn't, just didn't have anything at all to argue. I did a complete analysis of the case, sent it to them, showed them they had nothing. And yet they did nothing for four months. We sent two or three more letters saying, you got to let this guy go. You don't have anything. They did nothing, not even any investigation. They purposefully kept him on the hook for four months, wondering what he was going to do for a living. Right. Well, this is about, it's, it's, a, it's a chilling effect of this. It's about intimidation. Oh, sure. It's about keeping others from exercising their religious freedom as well. Well, I, I thank the Lord for institutions and organizations like Thomas More that are out there defending religious freedom and those men and women who are serving in public. We need them, but they need their religious freedom, and they ought to have the right to exercise okay. it. Thanks so much for defending them. Matt, thanks for being with us today. Tony, always good to have you. Thanks. All right. Folks, we have our freedom because we use our freedom. We cannot surrender that. All right, don't go away. We're coming back with more. Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets and other social media posts, and our latest blogs, updates, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. 
Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. What is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs. Why should we care about this freedom? At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe that it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a tragic reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media, even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to increase globally. In Scripture, God calls Christians to pray and care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To access Family Research Council's latest resources and to learn more about religious freedom and what you can do to help the persecuted, go to frc.org slash religious liberty. Attention university students. Are you looking for an internship that will help you grow as a Christian leader and allow you to positively influence the culture? Then Family Research Council's internship program is for you. FRC's life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program will prepare and equip you for the next step in your professional journey. You'll enjoy a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training. All of these offerings were created to aid you in your personal and professional development. As an intern, you will have the opportunity to work side by side with our experts in policy, communications, event planning, and more. The real world experience you gain will prepare you to pursue a career of influence and make a difference wherever God calls you. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown DC, giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins. The website, TonyPerkins.com. I ran out of time in that last segment uh, just to kind of put a bow on uh, on that topic of religious freedom and, and the police officer there in Louisville, Kentucky. Look, I, I think it's, a, it's important we understand what religious freedom is. Religious freedom is not just the uh, the church that you choose to attend if you choose to attend one. It, it's uh, it, it's your ability to live your life according to your faith. Uh, you know, th- this has been referred to as a, a Protestant work ethic in terms of being able to take your faith into the marketplace. In fact, this is what many historians, sociologists say that made America such a prosperous country is that we, many of the Protestants, the early Puritans, saw uh, work as an extension of their worship. And, and that's why we've had, the, we've had this guarded protection over people's faith and their ability even, you, you still see this, where people are given time off on Sunday because that's their day of worship or Saturday, whatever their day may be. Um, but here in this case where a police officer off-duty praying outside an abortion clinic because he has a pro-life position being suspended by his police department, this is a real problem. It's designed to intimidate others to back away from their faith. Well, I know, I've seen it up front and personal. And so what do we do to that? Well, we respectfully live out our faith, and we stand up like the officer in Louisville, Shringer, Officer Shringer, who refused to back down. And, of course, you have now people who come alongside and support you. So I, I just encourage you, do not go silent. Do not surrender to the forces that want to crush religious freedom. We need people with moral conviction and a moral compass in all walks of life. All right. I want to go uh, very quick. I'm going to play a clip from uh, Senator Mitch McConnell on the uh, Senate floor earlier today talking about you know, all this stuff with the coronavirus, the, the COVID, and how a lot of the world is now realizing, look, it's time to, to stop it. Well, it's time to pull the plug on this pandemic mindset here in America as well. Play the clip, please. It's time for the state of emergency to wind down. But disturbingly, whether or not we should trust the science and reclaim normalcy is somehow becoming a partisan question. It is. 
Science is no longer really the guide that we follow. Now, you might remember back in June of 2020, Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, claimed in an interview that the COVID shutdown saved millions of lives at a time when there were more than 2.1 million confirmed cases of COVID in the United States and nearly 118,000 deaths. Play that clip of Dr. Fauci. People get confused and they say, wow, you know, we shut down and we caused a great disruption in society. We caused great economic pain, a loss of jobs. But if you look at the data now that papers have come out literally two days ago, the fact that we shut down when we did and the rest of the world did has saved hundreds of millions of infections and millions of lives. But a new meta-analysis conducted by a team at Johns Hopkins University has concluded that the, quote, lockdowns have had little to no public health effects. They also found little to no evidence that lockdowns had a noticeable effect on COVID mortality rates, reducing mortality in the United States and Europe only by 0.2%. While every death is a tragic loss, did the lockdowns do more harm than good? With me to talk about this and more is Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. He is a professor of medicine at Stanford University and one of the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, a statement advocating an alternative approach to the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Bhattacharya, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you for having me. So uh, your thoughts on this uh, report out of Johns Hopkins? Well, first, may I just make a comment about what uh, Dr. Fauci said in June of, of 2020? He was reflecting a, uh, about a, a paper that had been published earlier that modeled, that did a model of how many lives would have been lost without a lockdown. This is an example of garbage in, garbage out. The model built into it had this assumption that if you locked down, if you kept people apart from each other, if you closed schools, if you uh, made funerals so that only no, no one could attend, if you had forced people to die alone, well, then you would save lives. The COVID would stop spreading. And then they compared that against how many people actually died and said, oh, look, we saved 2 million lives or whatever the number was. Uh, that was false then, and it was, it's false now. It's a very simplistic model of how the world actually works. The actual experience of a lockdown uh, in, the, in, in rich countries like the U.S., is it's a certain class of people that can benefit from a lockdown, people who don't lose their jobs if they stay work from home, stay home, stay safe. Well, that only worked for a certain group of people, you know, a laptop class. For most of the country, they had to go to work to feed their families. They had to go to work to, 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 to take care of, of society, keep it going. Um, and so it's no, not a surprise that this new study that looks at actual real-world evidence of lockdowns finds so little evidence that it actually worked. Um, it, it, it doesn't actually, although you may, it may be attractive to some people to think about, well, if we just stay apart, we, the disease stops spreading. That isn't how societies actually function and cannot function. Uh, it's, it's the, the lockdowns themselves were cruel in what they did to people to keep people apart, instilled fear in people. And yet, nevertheless, the disease spread. And, you know, 80% of the deaths have been above, above the age of, of 65 because the disease is so, so sharply uh, damaging people older. Well, lockdowns didn't stop the spread in nursing homes where 40% of the deaths are. Uh, they're a absolute failed policy, uh, probably the single worst public health mistake I've seen in my lifetime. So when you look at public policy decisions, as you, you just articulated, a host of issues related to lockdowns. I mean, you have economic issues, you have uh, social issues, you have mental health issues. But when you ask someone who is in charge of infections to give you, you know, hey, what should we do about these infections? Well, if he's only focused on, you know, stopping the spread of an infection or a disease, but not all of these other factors which public policy experts should be focused on. I mean, this is like asking a mortician which vitamins to use. I mean, you have to get a holistic picture of what is best for society. And I would I would submit that we chose the wrong model. Yeah, in fact, it was, if you recall back, the, the mantra was, well, you know, you can't, uh, you, if you, if you have, don't have expertise in epidemiology, virology, or immunology, you're not allowed to speak up. Well, I'll tell you, like most epidemiologists, most virologists, most epi- immunologists, they may be very good at their field, but they do not have anywhere near the breadth 
of, of vision to understand how society should be structured, how, uh, how we should organize our life. They don't know if, uh, they, they, for instance, I'll just give you one example. I think it's close to home to many people in, uh, here and, and abroad. Uh, is keeping kids home from school really keeping them safe? Well, what happened was uh, during the lockdowns, the sharpest lockdowns, child abuse reporting went down, but child abuse actually went up because there, it's schools where child abuse is caught and addressed. Um, the depression rates went through the roof. So one in four young adults in June of 2020 seriously considered suicide. Uh, tens of millions of people around the world, because of the economic harm by the lockdowns, were thrown into dire food insecurity and poverty. In March of 2021, the U.N. estimated that 230,000 children had died from starvation and skipped medical uh, medical care in South Asia alone. Um, you need a wide range of expertise to know about these things. Right. You cannot have society run by a narrow class of scientists. And you certainly cannot have it all that power in the, in the hands of one man who controls the budgets of an enormous number of scientists. Uh, who like if you know they they a lot of people who had a lot of trouble with these lockdowns as a, as an idea stayed a lot of qualified people stayed silent because they were they feared that their reputations would be harmed their ability to get grants would be cut undercut because the the person in charge of the lockdown policy was also in charge of scientific funding that's not right there's a problem with that model yeah it, i mean it's and you mentioned, you forgot to mention one other aspect that we saw this spike in uh, in drug overdoses uh, as a result of the mental health issues and the other issues related to the lockdowns. So, uh, Dr. Bhattacharya, all right, we 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 have a little bit of a a, a ref frame of reference here. We've got two years. We're now beginning to have some analysis of the data, but there's still, quite frankly, I think, fear of really looking at the data because of the cancel culture and how everybody's just kind of caught up in this uh, mob mentality when it comes to, oh, you got to get a vaccine, this is what we've got to do. But when you begin to look at the facts and they're not adding up, it, it undercuts the credibility that those government voices have. And now when you see Pfizer appealing to the FDA to get approval under the emergency use provisions of vaccines for babies. I mean, this is going to cause some people to ask questions. Are we rushing this? Is this moving too quickly? Do we really need to do this? Because this is going to most probably lead to more mandates. Well, I mean, if you look at the data on who's actually vulnerable to COVID, there's a, a an enormous difference between the risk posed to children uh, who face vanishingly low risk, lower risk of dying from COVID than the flu, especially young children, com compared to older adults. Before the vaccine, the, uh, the the death rate among people over 70 was something like 3, 4, 5%. For children, it's the death rate from COVID infection is less than 0.01%. So uh, the risk that you're protecting these little babies against is is vanishingly small. On the other hand, there's still risk from the, vac the vaccine. The, the trials that looked at children enrolled fewer than 5,000 patients overall in the, in the, in the six-month to five-year-old age group, 5,000. Uh, and um, they didn't even have as an endpoint the prevention of disease. All they had as an endpoint was the production of antibodies. This needs far more study before it is employed at population scale to babies. Um, I mean, it may be safe. It may not be. It's hard to tell from the data that we have alone that, that, that on which Pfizer is basing it. It may. It certainly would need to be uh, I, 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 the evidence on on establishing efficacy needs to be far better than it could, than it currently is. Um, and I and I worry very deeply, as exactly as you said, Tony, that people will use this to uh, restrict the activities of, of parents and and kids unless they get vaccinated. Essentially, forcing. Uh, parents to decide to vaccinate when it may or may not be in the best interest of the children. I mean, you and I, I think we've talked about this before, the anomalies here and how we are treating COVID unlike we've treated any other uh, disease or or illness like this. And so we're, we're cutting corners, we're doing things rapidly. And I, I understand that at first 
it was being done. But now we're beginning to see a better picture that there were certain voices speaking into the public policy uh, arena that had a very narrow view of what needed to be done. So on the backside of this, well, actually, we're not on the backside of it because we're still having these mandates here. But are you finding among your colleagues more of a willingness now to speak out as more of this evidence is coming forth that questioned the decisions that have been made to this point? Yeah, I mean, I think what we're seeing is that uh, people are starting to speak up. The, the the depth of destruction wrought by these lockdowns is enormous and impossible to ignore. And the failure of the policy, I mean, what was the promise? The promise was that we would get rid of COVID, have the virus under control. I mean, how, how has that worked out? The failure of those promises has started to lead many people to start speaking up that were silent before. Um, you know, it's interesting, the strategies, Tony, that, that uh, that were used that uh, that Dr. Fauci and Dr. Collins, who was the head of the NIH, is uh, Dr. Fauci's boss, used to try to marginalize voices, uh, scientific voices. Uh, when I, I co-wrote the Great Protection Declaration in 2020, calling for a focused protection strategy, four days after we wrote it, Francis Collins wrote an email to Tony Fauci, calling me a fringe epidemiologist. And I, you know, I work at Stanford. I may, I may not be right or wrong, but I don't think I'm a fringe epidemiologist. Although now I put it on my my business card just for, just for fun. Um, um, and then he then he called for a devastating published takedown, which came in in the form of a of a uh, of an op ed in Wired magazine. Um, not a scientific takedown. Um, they, this is a strategy they used. When there was early in the epidemic, there was this question whether the the, the disease might have been originated in a lab in Wuhan, China, rather than they they uh, they organized a devastating takedown of fringe scientists who dared to say that it might be a lab leak. They did the same thing with people who said, well, look, there may be uh, cheap repurposed drugs that might work here. They call these scientists fringe and marginalize them. It's a strategy that you've seen Tony Fauci use throughout the epidemic over and over again, whenever there were scientists outside with some expertise challenging his wisdom. Um, and it is no way to run uh, health policy anywhere in the world. Dr. J, final question for you. Will science recover from this in terms of its credibility with the American people? How long will it take if it does? I mean, I think uh, a lot of reforms are going to need to happen. We cannot have such a small, narrow group of people in charge of science. And we certainly should have a bright firewall between people who fund science and people who uh, who make health policy. It is now very clear that the, the level of power when you give the, a single person or a single set, a small set of people, uh, both of those roles, you, you create an opportunity for corruption that I think most of us didn't re- realize existed before the pandemic, but we do now. That, so if science is to be reformed, we need to reform that. That is an extremely good point, and uh, I'm going to follow up on it as well. Uh, Dr. Bhattacharya, thanks so much for joining us. Always great to talk with you. Thank you. All right, folks. And thank you for joining us as well. Check out the website, TonyPerkins.com. Resources there for you, as well as contact information for our guest. Until next time, I leave you with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 6, where he says, when you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, when you've prepared, and when you've taken your stand, by all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.